Well, hello, welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to episode 289 of Sustainable Minimalists, a twice-weekly show about intentional and eco-minimalist living. On today's show, we are discussing two very tangible ways we can align our everyday ho-hum choices with our heart-first values. All too often, and perhaps without even realizing it, Many of us live our lives by taking the path of least resistance. What's the easiest choice for me personally? A better way of saying that would be, what's the most convenient way to get this done, acquire this thing, check this item, check this to-do item off my to-do list? The problem, though, with letting convenience lead our actions is that a lot of times doing so comes at the expense of our personal values, those values that extend beyond ourselves. So in the first part of today's show, we are discussing the concept of a convenience tax. What is it and why should those of us with the means to do so tax ourselves, essentially? And in the second part of today's show, we're discussing philanthropy. If you're in the habit of giving money to charities and organizations that align with your values, my guest today has a few concrete tips as to how to make your giving go further for the organizations you choose to support. Today, I speak with author and social impact expert Sharon Schneider. Sharon, really thrilled to talk to you today. Tell us who you are, what you do, and one fun fact about you that most people don't. No. Oh, sure. I am the author of Handbook for an Integrated Life, which is a practical guide to aligning your everyday choices with your internal compass. And then in this case, by internal compass, I mean sort of your values, your deepest values. And it's actually a reflection of my day job, which is that I am a consultant to family offices, private foundations, founders that want to integrate their values across their enterprise. So again, sometimes people think about a foundation as having 5% of its money that it gives away. And then the other 95% is invested to grow and to create more money to give away. But about 20 years ago, people started saying, wait a minute, what about that 95%? Is the way that it's invested and the way that it's supporting the world actually in contrast My career has been in philanthropy and impact investing, which is, of course, taking that 95% and trying to deploy it in ways that are aligned with the 5%. And then the book really takes that same concept and brings it to everyday people that have much fewer zeros in their bank account, but still want to accomplish the same goal. I'm glad you mentioned that because you mentioned high dollar amounts and foundations and founders. And so I'm wondering... First of all, you didn't tell me the fact about yourself that nobody knows. We're going to get back there. So in your answer next, tell us, number one, your fun fact, but also is having an integrated life only for those high level dollar income foundations and founders, or can the average Joe Schmo, Stephanie Safarian, can we also have an impact? Yeah. Well, first, my fun fact my husband and I were licensed poker dealers in Atlantic City for a couple of years before we got married. So I'm a very good poker dealer, but a very bad poker player. I flush when I have cards. So if I like turn splotchy and red, you should just fold. And then is the integrated life only for people who can afford it? So a lot of times 
when people think about being sustainable or being impactful or values aligned, they think about buying organic, buying fair trade, right? These are things that cost more than traditional or conventional, as they call it, conventional items. But I actually say that question of buying, what should you buy, fair trade or or organic cotton versus conventional cotton, should be like question number four as you think about it. Question number one should be, do I need another thing? Do I have to have something? And so many times the answer will actually be no. And so if the answer though is I do need a thing, then my, my next question in the hierarchy can I borrow it? Could I rent it? Do I have to own that thing? And then if you do need to own it, because you're going to use it often enough, then the next question is, can you get it gently used? Does it have to be, are there secondhand stores or sources or Craigslist? Could you get something that is already in existence? And then if the answer is still no, then you can say, okay, I have to buy something new. Can I get it organic or fair trade? So I think, you know, the mentality shouldn't be about buy the same amount of stuff, but switch to organic. It should be really about examining, you know, whether more stuff is really in alignment with kind of the values that you hold. I say all of that all the time on this podcast, but the reality is that outlook, that way of life is not glamorous. And similar to that is also the thought with regard to, you mentioned, shared prosperity. Like it sounds good, but in practice, participating and helping create that world in which there is shared prosperity, that also is not glamorous because it often requires that you and I and not the founders and not the foundations, but just everyday people give and give some more. So I would love it if you talked more about your concept of shared prosperity, but also talk to me about why giving back is not what we should be striving for. We should just be giving. Yeah. In Western culture, the idea of what is glamorous is itself so problematic, right? Because it involves sort of conspicuous consumption and lack of care about consequences. And to me, I like, I just have, and maybe this is a prerequisite for wanting to have a more integrated life, but I don't aspire to be a Kardashian. I look at that and I think, gross, like that whole lifestyle is just gross. And so I guess I'm not trying to be glamorous so much as content and feel alignment. One of the things I will say is the very first line of the book is I say, I'm not doing this to save the world. I'm doing it to save myself. And what I mean by that is that we put too high a bar on the idea of if I stop using plastic straws, is that going to save the environment? It's not me by myself, but I will feel better and feel like I'm living a life of integrity and in alignment with my values if I make those individual choices every day. And so my goal isn't to be glamorous, but to be content and feel alignment. And I think that's where true happiness comes from, is making those little choices that I know aren't maximizing benefit for myself. And this is where shared prosperity comes in, right? Is that, again, we're trained to maximize every transaction for our own benefit. So get the best deal you can, get the exclusive discount, try to get over on, you know, somebody in a negotiation and win quote. And I really think again, that might 
have short-term financial benefits, but long-term just doesn't make me feel good about who I am and how I show up in the world. Shared prosperity is about recognizing that I don't actually have to live that way. (laughs) I can live and transact and exist with my neighbors in a way that works for all of us, whether that means offering to lend them my yard equipment as well as borrow it from them, creating systems of sharing and systems of mutual support and all those mutual support and aid societies that kind of sprung up during the pandemic where we all recognize that everybody has something to give and something to receive. Shared prosperity. And by the way, that's why I don't love the concept of giving back. Giving back implies you take first. It implies accumulate everything you can take first. And then at some point when you have enough when you feel like you've got the fame and the fortune and the power and whatever, now you can very benevolently, you know, give a little bit back. But the issue is you've caused so many problems along the way by maximizing benefit to yourself that whatever you're choosing to give back, it's not going to be enough to solve the problems that you created by living in that materialistic me first way. So I talk about give, just give as, you know, not waiting for that future moment to flip a switch and become concerned about the welfare of others. Your statement there makes me think, isn't it the epitome of saviorism? In my case, I'm white. So white saviorism to give back, to help others, but only when I'm at a place in which I (laughs) can do so from the top of the mountain or the rooftop or whatever it is. And you did mention there, you know, the materialistic me first way that so many of us in this consumerist society operate on. In my daily life, people I know, people I love, people I don't know, but I feel like the general viewpoint as it relates to moving throughout the world is very me-centered, very self-centered, rugged individualism. Isn't that what our country is founded on? So me first and then everybody else, but only if it works for me. So are you in the majority or are you in the minority in your opinion? In my own sort of social circles in life, I am in the majority because that's the community I've cultivated. So what seems normal depends on where you hang out. (laughs) And so if you hang out reading, I don't know, tabloids and watching reality TV, then you absolutely believe that me first materialism is normal and is the way to go. But my social and professional circle is filled with incredibly generous people who are modeling these behaviors every day. And so there's a really powerful lesson there, which is if it feels abnormal to you, maybe switch where you're hanging out. If you feel so against the grain or people are going to think you weird, trust me when I say there are plenty of people out there who think this way, you might have to find them. And so actually the first principle is about seeing the mainstream current, like seeing where the mainstream is taking you and becoming aware of it, especially if you realize it's taking you in a direction maybe you don't want to go. But again, it seems so normal, it's hard to resist. It's really about recognizing the mainstream current and then deciding whether you want to be swept away by that current or whether you want to cultivate a new community. That really speaks to me. And again, I'm preaching to the choir. I preach to the choir all the time on this show because if people continuously come back to this show, then they've decided that they don't want to be swept away by the mainstream current. But one of my favorite 
aspects to your book was your idea of the convenience tax. Tell me all about it. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of discovered this mid writing the book where I was describing the purchasing hierarchy to someone actually. And they go, that sounds like a lot of running around. (laughs) We've been trained, I think, really all of us have been trained that our own convenience is the highest and best value that a product or a service can give to us is that's more convenient. My big example, of course, being Amazon Prime, right? So many, many of the things you can get through Amazon are available at local smaller businesses, independent retailers, but it's just so convenient. There's a button on your phone, you click the button, it shows up the next day. And with this training of our convenience, we often over time then put that ahead of other values. Like we might want to support local businesses. We might want to be more environmentally friendly. Oh, but Prime is just so convenient. And so even though it's not environmentally friendly, they're charging their sellers, I just saw 34% fees of the sale price of an item. Like there's a lot of issues, but again, we're putting convenience at the top of the list. And so what I say is, look, if you're a single caregiving, low income person, do whatever you got to do. You do what you got to do. And I'm not going to begrudge you getting your prime delivery or your groceries or shopping at the big box store or whatever. But if you can afford a little more time, a little more money, a little more effort, then Put your other values back ahead of convenience. Pay a little bit of a convenience tax to do something that is in alignment. So look for that local baker instead of running to the grocery store for a cake or a local hardware store instead of the big box store. And and again, you pay a little bit, but the benefit you get, the me first, right, that you get in return is feeling more aligned. You feel better. You feel more aligned and feel good about having supported and lived into your values in that way. So I think if you can afford it, then a convenience tax is a really powerful tool that you have at your disposal. Well, Sharon, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we are going to talk about that idea of actively working against our own convenience, which, as I say that, it even sounds a bit revolutionary. But we're going to talk about that after a quick word from today's sponsor. And we're back with Sharon Schneider. She is a social impact and philanthropy expert. She is also the author of the new book, Handbook for an Integrated Life, a practical guide to aligning your everyday choices with your internal compass. Sharon, before the break, we were talking about your idea of the convenience tax. And you said an awful lot there that I want to touch on. You mentioned that consumers in 2022 tend to seek out convenience above all other facets of life, all other values. And if we're going to continue that trend forward, our imaginations are the limit. Where are we going to go with this need for convenience above all else? But why do you think it is that we in 2022, in a time when, yes, life can and is still hard, but comparatively, if we take a wide lens, our lives as human beings in America are the easiest that they've ever been. Why is it that now do you think we are choosing to pay more for convenience and we're letting all our other values fall to the wayside? I think it goes back to what you were saying about like a glamorous lifestyle, right? We've been told that 
convenience and eliminating as much effort as possible allows you the most possible time for leisure. And when you've got, again, when you've got like small children at home or you're caretaking for a relative that is sick or elderly or whatever the case may be, then yeah, minimizing the time you have to spend on activities or running errands or whatever is obviously really important. And I don't begrudge those people at all. (laughs) I think though that We've come to see just parts of, I don't know, living like grocery shopping and cooking and taking care of our clothing as things that should be minimized and outsourced instead of as like part of life. We're chasing this life where we have to do no household maintenance, no effort to to procure the things that we want. And the closer you can get to that, of everything being handed to you and everything being done for you, which is the glamorous life, somehow the more successful that you are, rather than treating those tasks almost as, I don't know, opportunities, opportunities to act in accordance with your values. You mentioned the Kardashians before and something just popped into my mind as you were talking. I'm wondering whether reality TV, social media plays into this. I mean, the internet has drastically changed our sphere for comparison, right? Before we were just keeping up with our neighbor, the Joneses. But now the majority of us, we are maybe subconsciously trying to keep up with the Kardashian Joneses, right? We see them living. They're not doing their own grocery shopping. (laughs) They're not mending their own clothes. But I think it's important to say that there is significant joy to be had when we mend our clothes or we do our own errands or when we take care of our stuff instead of just disposing it. And I think that's really what you're speaking to. I think you gave a great explanation of the why, like why should we perhaps impose a convenience tax on ourselves, but how do we do it? I'm a big fan of like the purchasing hierarchy, right? Again, not jumping to, oh, where can I buy this for as cheap as and easy as possible, which is how you end up buying everything on Amazon. But to say, do I really need it? I think a commitment to buying local is also a really important kind of way to, again, if you say, I'm going to spend 15 minutes looking for a local supplier for this item before I go to a big box store, before I, I go to my Prime app or whatever, as just a discipline that you get used to or committing to cooking more. But I think forming your own commitment or your philosophy is probably the most important step to, to committing to the convenience tax, if you will, or as I say in the book, resist the allure of convenience. And by the way, on the social media front you mentioned, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're sold this lifestyle through social media and traditional media, movies and television, that demonstrates ultimate convenience and lack of any household or or real life tasks, because the marketing of products and services is so tied into that. They want us, right, marketers of all these big companies and selling all of these kind of stuff we don't really need, want us to aspire to that lifestyle. The most damaging export the United States has actually ever sent is our lifestyle that we have projected around the world through TV and movies that demonstrates this ultra quote unquote glamorous, super convenient, no like real world. That's kind of the American export of our of our 
uh, Kardashian culture, if you will. They would say that has been the most damaging because now other countries are trying to emulate the American lifestyle and rapidly and dramatically increasing their consumption of what I would argue is mostly just junk. We're talking about, I would say, two things here. One is make choices that are perhaps a bit less convenient for the betterment of the planet to make yourself feel better at the end of the day. But then there's also the philanthropy component. And I must be honest, Sharon, (laughs) when I think about how we do philanthropy in our house, it is always a, oh no, it's Christmas, or oh no, the end of the year is coming up. Let's write some checks to the organizations that mean something to us, that are aligned with our values. But I say that because I know we can be doing better. (laughs) We could be doing much better. So tell me, how can I make philanthropy more of a lifestyle, a teachable moment that I can pass on to my children? Help me do giving better. Yeah, well, my biggest tip would be Rather than thinking of it as a year-end exercise, what I've done is, you know how the public radio station says, become a monthly giver, and whether it's $10 a month or whatever, I've done that with all of the charities that I am committed to. As I give them a monthly gift and just set it on autopilot, put it in my budget for the month, it comes out automatically. And that has tremendous benefits for them as a nonprofit that allows them, for example, to have much more even cash flow throughout the year, rather than getting it in one lump and never knowing it's predictable. It's also saves them from having to work so hard to earn your next donation by reminding you that they exist. The other thing I would say is a lot of people when they're selecting a charity, They do it based on the cause. So they'll say, I'm a big fan of animal and we want to support like a no kill shelter. We want to support like an animal rescue or I want to support unwed mothers funds. They used to call it. I bet they don't call it that anymore. You would say that's a great cause. And the thing is, there is a massive, massive difference between a good cause and a good nonprofit. So there are a hundred different ways to run a program for teenage parents. And some of them are really good and backed by a lot of evidence that they have great outcomes in terms of the life results for those participants. And some of them are really bad. And if you've only ever looked at one program for teenage parents, and you've only ever supported that one, then you have no idea. You have no idea if it's good or not. And no, the ratio of dollars they spend on administration versus programs does not tell you anything. If you've only ever done one, you you have no idea. You think it looks amazing. Oh, they're helping people. This is an amazing program. But unless you're comparing their effectiveness to other similar organizations in terms of how effective their programs are. So rather than spread things around to five or six good causes, I encourage people to go deep in one and really get to know what is what is strong programming look like in that area. And that's how you'll make sure that the dollars you do donate are going toward really achieving results for the people. Again, such concrete and wonderful tips, Sharon. I'm thinking about my local NPR station. I'm an avid listener, but I always give a one-time donation. (laughs) I never really want to be a recurring member, but you aptly told me why I'm wrong. There's so many benefits to the station 
if I become that recurring donor. So I have to think about that. But my final question, well, I have two questions. So the second to last question, the penultimate question, if you will, I love that word, is we're living through a period of inflation, gross inflation right now, where I would garner to guess that a lot of my listeners are thinking, I can barely make ends meet. Why would I pay a convenience tax? Or why would I give philanthropically? Do you have any words to say to them? Yeah, a couple things. One of the things I find so fascinating, actually, about the time we're living in is that there's such, for me, such a disconnect between we know that fossil fuels are like literally killing the planet and we're burning up. It's been 100 degrees for more days in Colorado this year than like any time in the last. And yet, instead of saying, yep, higher gas prices are the natural result of a diminishing supply. And what you should really be doing is like weaning yourself off of the need for those supplies. We continue to say, oh gosh, how can we bring down gas prices to enable the gas dependent society that we've created? And part of me thinks we've lost the societal concept of shared sacrifice. That was what made America during World War II, for example, the incredible kind of country that came together to grow victory gardens and recycle your nylons for the troops. They were just such such a, it, it just wasn't weird. It wasn't extraordinary to ask people to sacrifice it. And, and I guess I'm, where I'm thinking of right now with inflation and particularly focusing on gases, I can't affect the price of gas. What I can do is reduce my use of that resource and think about biking and walking for like neighborhood errands or think of, yeah, taking a walk instead of driving to a gym or I just find dissonance in that of of how we can't ask people to maybe if gas is going up because you use less gas or when you take gas out of it, I know groceries are another area. So I think reducing waste and reducing, like really thinking about how you can accomplish the same goals, but waste less along the way is maybe the short-term answer. Sharon, tell my listeners where they can find your new book, Handbook for an Integrated Life. If you go to my website at theintegratedlife.com, there's a page where you can find links to other places like IndieBound or bookshop.org, and it will be actually physically in independent and bookstores near you. Listeners, that's a wrap. I've linked to everything we've discussed today in the show notes at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 289. Now, a couple things. Really quick, if you haven't left a review yet, leave a review, please, or a rating on Spotify. I sound like a broken record, but that's because those ratings and reviews are so darn important. There's been a lot coming in these past few weeks, and yes, I read every single one. Thank you. Next item is Thursday's show. It is all about which type of vehicle is right for you the next time you go to purchase or lease or buy a used vehicle? Is it time for an EV, an electric vehicle? What about a plug-in hybrid? Maybe just a hybrid, or is a conventional vehicle still the right choice for you? I'm speaking with a car expert. It is such a good episode. Oh my goodness, so much content. So if you are still listening to the end of this podcast, which not many of you do, by the way, I know how many of you trail off, but if you're still listening, first of all, go you. Second of all, don't miss Thursday's episode. I will see you then. Reach out if you need me. See you Thursday.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.